you can be turning to Acts chapter 11. We're actually only doing four verses today, but they are big, big subjects. And I got the end of my, to my studying, and in the very last verse, it hit on another topic that I was thinking in the back of my mind that I wanted to expand on, but I guess we'll have to hit that topic another day because I didn't want to take one more Sunday. And <laughs> If you were here last week, I entitled our sermon then that adversity is advancement. You know, whether it be persecution, hostility between old enemies, or the reality of somebody like Saul who was an adversary to the kingdom and became a kingdom advancer, this last portion of chapter 11 is really persists that theme of adversity being um, advancement. In fact, I had originally planned on preaching these four remaining verses last week, but because of the subjects within these verses, I felt like they demanded a bit more time for us to consider. So generally speaking, though, the adversity of this famine that comes through a prophet, we get to hear a prophecy today, but that's still going to be used to further the kingdom because the church is in turn going to give monetarily. Adversity is still advancement. But the way that the church hears about this famine is through a prophet. And so we're going to talk a little bit about prophecy today. And then also the way that this church helps out those who might be affected by the famine is through giving. So we're going to be talking about giving today. We're going to be talking about prophecy and we're going to be talking about giving. Glad you're here. You're welcome. Um, I invite you to stand in honor of reading the Lord's Word if you can bear these four long verses on your feet. Chapter 11, beginning with verse 27. We read, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in uh, in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father, um, your word is full of such great truths and themes that weave throughout the whole Bible. Sometimes it's great to soak in as we read large amounts of narrative and where your hand is and how you're moving and Sometimes it's also good to zone in on a few details that we might read through quickly and don't take time to consider what it means for us. Father, this is one of those days, and even though we're going a little deep and exploring some huge topics, we pray that through it all we would grow in our knowledge in you, grow in our faith in you, and that if you test us and challenge us, that we would pass those tests, and we can do so by your Spirit, that uh, we can be obedient to anything you would call us to do. Father, would you soften hard hearts? Those of us who have preconceived ideas, would you allow us to let those things go and let your truth and your word fill us? And Father, may um, our beliefs conform to your truth, not the other way around. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would have complete uh, say here. Get me out of the way and say what it is you desire. 
We love you and we thank you for this time we have together with your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, as a pastor, you get lots of questions, sometimes theologically related, Bible-related, belief-related. And every now and then here at Woodland Friends, I'll have a question or I'll hear a comment, something about church life, theology, beliefs, and I'll be reminded of something that's easy to forget. And that is, we're all coming from very different places, (laughs) very different church backgrounds, theological backgrounds. Someone will bring up a subject and thinking that I'm a hundred percent on the same page, knowing exactly where they're come from, where they're coming from, when the fact is, is maybe I'm not. I'm a little lost, I'm a little confused, maybe might even be a little uncomfortable to be honest, and that's really not judgment on my part. More than it's anything, it's just different backgrounds. And and I think it's easy to forget this because I think we all get along pretty well here. <laughs> Which is pretty amazing considering just how different we really are. And I've told some people this before that we're like a trail mix. (laughs) And if somebody walks in with some other faith or tradition that isn't already represented, we'll we'll just be throwing another nut. (laughs) Throwing into the trail mix. (laughs) Vince, come on, I thought I'd get an amen out of that one. (laughs) We have some long-standing Quakers. (laughs) We have some Nazarenes like me. We have a Mennonite. We have some Pentecostals. We have some... Baptists, we have some non-denominational, we have some from high church like Catholics and Lutherans. And each of these faith traditions maybe had some things that may have been normal that weren't normal in my personal background. Each of these traditions may have some beliefs that maybe at some point in time, if you come from that tradition, maybe you realize that, well, maybe that was something unique to my tradition, but then we say to ourselves, But probably it's shared by other traditions when the fact of the matter is it may not be. It may sound foreign to some other faith traditions. I like to think that I'm a pretty gracious guy. That when somebody starts talking to me about one of these subjects that isn't in my background, that I I just didn't have growing up, usually I think I'm good about extending grace and... uh, in the sense of not letting it throw me off for a loop. But I'm also a guy with strong convictions. <laughs> and sometimes I'm not going to change uh, overnight. And, and simply because I may receive a conversation with grace does not mean, does not say much in terms of resistance to thoughts or concepts weird to me. It does not mean that I'm going to implement what you're saying into my life. I'm kind of a lazy Christian. I've gotten along fine without something that you find much satisfaction in. So what's the point in me thinking that I'm all, that I'm all of a sudden in need of it? Does that make sense? I don't know if that's biblical or right. It's just who I am. And I like to think that if that if I'm not on the wagon of implementing your theological beliefs or practices after you talking to me about what you get out of it, does not mean that I think it's wrong. But it might mean that I'm not convicted by the Spirit saying to me, hey, yeah, you need this. I mean, and if he does, then maybe I'll do something about that. I use all that to say prophecy. <laughs> um, 
And maybe the other Nazarenes here might have a different experience. But as for me, at Valley View Church of the Nazarene and the three pastors that I sat under teaching of, and, well, four if you count a long interim pastor, I don't recall really even one Sunday where prophecy was a large subject. Most of the pastors... Um, preached primarily topically, whereas I'm that weird guy who likes to just go through books of the Bible. But prophecy just wasn't a topic that was picked out. And for the folks who did go through books of the Bible, they usually went through it faster than I did, and sometimes they didn't touch on every verse. Me, well, here we are with only two little verses about prophecy, and I think I need to take up half a sermon about it. Since about chapter 19 of verse 11, where we started last week, we've been talking about a lot of things happening at a church in Antioch. And just by way of reminder, Antioch was in uh, the time of the book of Acts, thought to be about a half a million people or more. It was about 15 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. It was the capital of the Roman province of Syria. Only Rome and Alexandria, Egypt, were the bigger cities of its day. But even so, it's said that Antioch's walls enclosed the city with a larger area than Rome. And so the church that was planted here is largely the first biggest Gentile church. That would be a missionary sending church, Barnabas and Saul. And I even suggested that its influence in many ways would surpass Jerusalem. Now, where we last left off last week, the disciples witnessing in Antioch were attracting Gentiles, of course, which was controversial in the early church days. They're not Jews. Jerusalem, think of it as a denominational headquarters. <laughs> they sent Barnabas to Antioch uh, kind of as a means of verifying what was happening. Hey, report back to us. Make sure those Gentiles aren't messing up the church, that sort of deal. Barnabas is so happy with God's grace being poured out there, he decides to jump in with the ministry. He goes and gets Saul of Tarsus. He, Saul was at Tarsus. Saul used to be a persecutor, but he was converted. And he had been in Tarsus, likely preaching there and planting churches. And so in the midst of Barnabas and Saul's co-pastoring, if you will, at this church, we read verse 27 and 28. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And if you just saw that map, you said, that's north, that's up. But Jerusalem in Jewish mind is the highest point of elevation and anywhere you're going from Jerusalem is going to be going down. That's what they thought of. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. I would like to break down this topic of prophesying in this context, highlighting three of the phrases in these two verses. It starts with, in these days. And I want to ask, does prophesying like this still occur? Secondly, we see that Agabus prophesied by the Spirit. And so we're going to look at Spirit-centered prophesying. And then thirdly, we see Luke verify this prophecy by noting the fulfilled event. And thus, we're going to look at the test of a prophet. So does prophecy still occur what is spirit-centered prophesying, and what does the test of a prophet have to do with this? First, we see that Luke is 
framing the happenings here as in these days, likely meaning in the days of the church of Antioch's founding, or in the days that when the Gentiles were coming into the church, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one named Agabus prophesies. Actually, very important here, the language specified that Agabus foretold about the famine. Now, it's oft heard when teaching on prophesying, but it's easy to remember. Prophecy is both foretelling and forthtelling. Foretelling as in telling about future events, forthtelling as in basically interpreting God's will right now. Sometimes people would say what I do every Sunday is a form of prophecy. The word in verse 27 for prophets, Strong's best defines it for us as a prophet is, quote, an interpreter uh, or forth-teller of the divine will. I've been reading through the prophet Jeremiah. If you're friends on Facebook, you're probably tired of all my Jeremiah verse pictures. You're welcome for that. And a whole lot of it could be seen as foretelling the future. It could be seen as foretelling the future. Hey, enemies are coming to destroy you. A lot of it is just godly wisdom and discernment. Because hear it this way. Hey, because you've been sinning, (laughs) ignoring God, morally shipwrecking yourselves, making deals with pagan kings who aren't out for your good more than they are out for their own good, it's going to come around and bite you. (laughs) Now that's not directly prophesying, as we would think of it in terms of foretelling. Now don't hear me wrong. Jeremiah and every prophet in the Old Testament makes it clear when Assyria, Babylon, or whoever wipes you out, that is God's judgment. He's raised them up to handle his own people who have deserted him. He's released his protection over you because you've deserted him. And so I'm saying they're naming nations, they're naming actions before they're happening. That's foretelling events. I get that. But a lot of prophecy is just interpreting the times people lives in, people live in with Godly perspective. Now, another part of prophecy is what Agabus is doing here, telling the future. Receiving God's knowledge about events yet to take place. When it comes to future prophesying today, there are two prevailing general ideas about that. One group says it does continue today. Theologians, just because they like to invent words, they call that continuationism. <laughs> Say that five times fast. Or, you know, if there's an adherent of that, they are continuationists. There are people uh, who receive visions from God about the future, and he who has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, there's another group of believers. Yes, they are believers. They believe that prophecy is a gift that was needed for the first church to verify the testimony of Jesus being the Messiah. But it was has been a gift that has since ceased. Theologians call these people who believe this way cessationists, ceasing. The apostles, being the eyewitnesses of Jesus, needed gifts and signs and wonders to follow in their wake so that they'd be believed. But this far removed with the church firmly planted, many gifts and prophesying among them may have died out in the first century with the apostles. What does your pastor believe about prophecy as far as it is to referring to future events 
being foretold. I'm going to cop out. I don't have an answer. (laughs) I'm a little undecided, to be honest. Now, all I'm going to say is that I lean towards skepticism. Not because, not downright ignorance or unbelief, (laughs) but skepticism. And one big reason for that is Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tells us that God long ago spoke to us by the prophets, the Old Testament. But in these last days, He speaks to us through His Son, Jesus. This, for me, leans me in the direction that when it comes to how God speaks to us primarily, and I want to say primarily, it's through His Son, Jesus, His Word, His Holy Spirit, and furthermore, it's Christ-centered more than anything. That's as far as I'm willing to talk about this. It leaves questions that I can't answer, which is why I'll just be ambiguous about my thoughts and future telling prophesiers right now. Another thing we see here in, is that Agabus foretold it by the Spirit, so says verse 28. Um, this word foretold in the ESV would be better translated in the King James, which says signified. Or the New King James says, showed. This word in the Greek is just one time of the six times it's used in the New Testament. Only John and Luke here are the only ones to use this word in their writings. I looked up the other passages for you. I put them on your outline if you have one to read it later. The idea for me for for indicating or signaling or showing And maybe this is only to me, but I guess it just sounds slightly different to me than outright foretelling or prophesying. I'm not saying that it isn't what's happening, but the actual word signified for me just colors the connotations for me differently. Paul shares in us in his writings a lot about prophesying. And the bulk of his words concerning prophesying are more on the foretelling than the foretelling, that is predicting the future. The sense of people who speak very well to our conditions and very well on a godly perspective about the path before us, the way that things should go, should we be unchanged. Paul opens for us in 1 Corinthians 14 for this, for example, he says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies, and listen how he defines prophesying here, he is one who speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Later on in the chapter, it seems to me that Paul is making it clear that he's talking about forthtelling, not the predictive type of prophecy, but exhortations, speaking about godly direction here and now, and and describing order in the worship service. Paul suddenly dons a Quaker hat, and he says in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. 
and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. The reason I said he dons a Quakerly hat is, for those of you who don't know, traditionally Quakers would sit in silence, and then many people would prophesy. You wouldn't just have a guy like me, a schmuck like me up here talking to you the whole time. Do you see here that the prophets are not necessarily foretellers, but foretellers? Paul is saying, let others weigh. The New King James would even say, judge what is said by the prophet. You know, I've heard a joke about a pastor's kid, and and this is for all of you who fell asleep because you're tired of me talking about deep stuff like this. The pastor wrote his sermons at home, and he did it in an old-fashioned way. He used a pencil. And... uh, And so one day his kid was watching him. The pastor sat down. He closed his eyes. He prayed for quite a while. And and after eventually he finished praying, he picked up his pencil, began writing. And ever so often he turned that pencil around in a race. And then he'd go back to writing and books were open all around him. And curious, the son finally came in and said, Dad, why do you close your eyes before you start writing your sermon? He says, well, son, when I write and preach sermons, I believe that I'm speaking on behalf of God. I ask him to give me the words he wants me to say before I start writing. And so then the son asked, well, why do you erase every now and then? (laughs) Paul seems to make room, even in the office of prophets in the New Testament, that others can weigh in, others can judge. Prophets are subject to other prophets. Interesting that at the end of Paul's first letter to the 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul would say this, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but then listen to this, but test everything, hold fast what is good. So prophecies can be tested. We can hold fast to what is good, which to me suggests that we can release what is bad. Prophets are still sinners and the Holy Spirit is working through sinners. Well, as for Agabus' foretelling, the event he foretold, famine, is verified by Luke as to it happened. (laughs) It's also verified by extra-biblical historians as well. Agabus prophesied a great famine over all the world. And in the Bible, this means the Roman world. It was a common Roman way of referring to the empire since it was so vast and it wasn't prideful at all. Well, there's no world that exists outside of our empire. No. And Luke then breaks the chronology of his writing and he just verifies for us, hey, this took place in the days of Claudius. It can speak, if I can speak to my own skepticism concerning foretelling prophets, concerning people who say this will happen on this year, that that will happen when these things take place, my skepticism comes from what appears to be high standards of testing in the Bible against prophets. Very high standards. Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, But the prophet who presumes to speak in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Back in Deuteronomy 13, we read, Moses gives a little bit more fearful warnings. He says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet. 
or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord with your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and the Lord and uh, obey his voice. Wow. And, but, and the Lord shall serve him and hold fast to him. Oh, okay, and you shall serve him. Oh, okay, I've got a typo in here. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Here's what I would say in conclusion about this topic. I'd say this, that foretelling prophecies should do primarily one thing. Spurn listeners deeper in Jesus. Foretellers should be doing the ministry laid out in Hebrews 1, directing affections, directing hope and peace and all obedience and all desire on Jesus and He alone. This can happen by focusing on the work of Jesus. It can happen by obeying Jesus. Or, as it does for the church here in Antioch, it spurs people to mimic the work of Jesus. See, we see in response of Agabus' prophecy the following, So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability, ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So I have to ask, was Agabus a little bit more specific than just the world in general? Because it's interesting to me that the disciples are deciding to spend for relief to Judea. Why just Judea? A few things come to my mind. Again, are the famines already starting? Where was Judea already suffering? Or it could be that Antioch saw Judea and Jerusalem as its mother church. Was Judea the only region that the only other region that the church existed at this point? Most commentators would point out that the greater point of this passage is, hey, look at the Gentile church giving freely to their Jewish church in Judea and Jerusalem. There are no more racial barriers. Jerusalem, even up to this point, I would argue, still has a bit of skepticism about Gentile believers because they have to hash all this out in Acts chapter 15. Nevertheless, here is Antioch saying, if they have famine, let's get them some money so they can get food for themselves and maybe for other, uh, other people who aren't as, from other people who may not be hit as bad by the famine. Race really played no part in their decision. Grace played a part in their decision and God played a part in their decision. Furthermore, Jerusalem sent Barnabas. He is a spiritual asset to Antioch getting Antioch off the ground. And so with the helps of Barnabas and Saul, we see that they in turn give some assets back to Jerusalem. It's only material assets. We see this transaction actually take place later in Romans 15. Paul writes, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia, that's Greece up there in Asia, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to be also to be of service to them in material blessings. 
Do you, do you hear what's happening there? Paul is saying these churches in Greece and the, and the Gentile lands, they've reaped the spiritual benefits from the first Christians in Jerusalem. It's a good thing that they would in turn give the material benefits to the Jerusalem church. You know what didn't pop up in the scriptures? Nobody in Antioch said, let's use the money locally. Didn't play a part in their decision. It didn't play a part in Antioch's decision. Awareness of the famine did. Responding to spirit-led prophecy did. Here's a mistake that I'm convinced that we make sometimes. Church is a spiritual thing. And we say church is a spiritual thing. And what it does is it minimizes our Christian life to get us to think that we go there to fill up on our spiritual tank and then we go home. That's taken care of. We'll close that compartment because at home we need to work on our work compartment. We need to work on our relationships compartment and our hobbies compartment. And then let's just go back on Sunday for our spiritual compartment. And what we see in the Bible is that church is a life thing. (laughs) Church is a life thing. And a big part of life, whether you like it or not, is money. A big part of God's economy and getting His message out into the world and getting His gospel out into the world and using the gospel to save the world requires money. It's a currency in our lives. Some don't like to talk about it in the church. Some of you are already squirming. It's so fun for me up here. (laughs) And some of us don't like to talk about it maybe because it's been handled sinfully and used sinfully by the church. Nevertheless, It doesn't make money a subject we shouldn't talk about. It just makes money a subject we should talk about correctly, biblically. I want you to see here, too, that God doesn't need money. Just like he doesn't need us to serve him. He's not served by human hands, Acts 17.25 says. Nevertheless, God uses money as a means of grace and sanctification in our lives, a means of maturing us. Here's a way he used money in this situation here. He uses it to test Antioch's faith and conviction. Will they put their money where their mouths and their hearts are? You know, I've wanted to preach on 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 before, and I wanted to do that just to see how many people would be left ever I preached through those two. No, just kidding. Have you ever read those? I mean, you talk about a guilt-inducing TV evangelist asking for offerings. I mean, I I like preaching on controversial passages, but Paul's talking to the church in Corinth, and he's telling them how great the church in Macedonia is doing. But he's talking to the Corinth, and he's saying, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave, according to their means, as I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now that's pretty thick, but Paul doesn't stop there. He he lays it on thicker. He practically uses, put your money where your mouth is. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, 8, Prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. You hear that? You say you love the church. Prove it. He says it again in verse 24 of the same chapter. He says, So give proof 
before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Wow. Paul says, we've been boasting about you. Oh, the church in Corinth, they're a great bunch. They just love the Lord and they love the church. And now Paul is saying, don't let us down now when it comes to money. Prove us right. Paul still lays it on thicker in 2 Corinthians 9. You know, he's saying, I've been telling Macedonia and Achaia all about you. And then he says that he and some others are coming to Corinth. So this, he's, this is writing the letter. They don't know anything about it yet. He says, we're coming to Corinth to collect the offering. And then he says in verse 4 of chapter 9, Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Wow, Paul. Paul's expecting a gift here, not an exaction. Like, I know I'm pretty much begging you to give, but I want it to be a gift. Not as a requirement. Now, I just read to you the persuading parts. I didn't read the reasons for it. Like, I just read um, for you the law parts, but not the heart parts. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul weaves these statements intertwined with the sort of heart that the Corinthians ought to be giving. And by expectation, why any Christian ought to give. And it goes back to how I transitioned from prophecy to offering in our passage. I said any foretelling prophecy should lead hearers to either focus on Jesus, obey Jesus, or mimic Jesus. When a Christian gives, they're supposed to be mimicking Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, in fact, right after one of those put your money where your mouth is statements, Paul says in context here, again, verse 8 and 9 of, of chapter 8, Again, prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine, right? You say you love God and the church, prove it. But now, here Paul frames it this way. Jesus has proven his love in the same way. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul sees that... A Christian's duty to give is immediately related to the gospel, to Jesus. Jesus gave. John 3.16, God loved the world so much He gave His one and only Son. And Jesus was rich. He gave so much, so, so much that He became poor. So this is not the millionaire walking in and dropping half a million and blessing a church like Woodland forever, but rather it's a millionaire walking in and Dropping it all in the bucket. All of it. It's sacrificial. Jesus put his deity in the bucket. (laughs) Why did he do it? For your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Is that how you think of offering? Do you give out of guilt? Yeah, after this sermon. (laughs) Do you give out of obligation? (laughs) Do you give out of routine? Do you ever stop to think this might make somebody else's life rich in the spiritual way? Some offerings here at Woodland Friends goes to a denominational headquarters who is currently trying to keep the past in the past and instead look forward to planting churches and discipling Christians that we have in the Northwest area. 
In other words, to make people spiritually richer. Some of what we send to our yearly meeting also in turn goes to Evangelical Friends Mission, a missionary arm, as well as we support directly here uh, missionaries from Nepal. They came here last fall to preach, as well as disaster relief efforts that have a direct evangelical emphasis in the South. They're making other lives rich. As well, your money ensures our own building and the ministry we're able to do continues. The facing bench, my preaching, our Sunday schools, and before you say some of that seems so-so, don't underestimate the need for enriching the lives of the saints. So many churches, I fear, make it all about numbers and converts. And here in the text, what are the churches in Antioch giving to? Relief efforts, just feeding the saints in Judea. Literally food for Christians. That wouldn't even be a direct evangelical effort in the sense that we usually think of. Another grace that God uses money for in our passage is, is Antioch willing to give to brothers and sisters in Christ that they haven't necessarily met to go towards a famine that who knows, for all they know, was just prophesied about. God used money in that situation to show kindness, grace, provision, and favor to Jerusalem. God used money to see if Jerusalem and Judea would steward it well. Because it's one thing to give money, but then one of the other reasons people get skeptical about giving is because, well, whoever I give it to, are they going to steward it well? Money becomes a way for believers to trust one another. So we've talked about prophets and we've talked about prophets. There was, this was more of an exploratory and an explanatory message about these two things, but to make it applicable for you comes in verse 30. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. I was having a conversation with a few pastors on Thursday, and, and one thing that we agreed upon is that we Protestants seem to emphasize grace and faith so much that the warning is, is let it not rob us from the biblical ideas of effort and response. Effort and response on our part. Effort is not earning salvation. Effort in trying to respond to God in His commands and demands is not an act of pride on our part, nor does it always means that we're trying to impress God. Effort is simply responding. Antioch here had to, by faith, Take the prophet at his word and by faith give, likely, cheerfully, sacrificially, and and generously. And they did so by sending likely two big names, two leaders that they've looked up to since their founding. Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul took their leave here to return to Jerusalem and left the ministry in Antioch. Beyond sacrificing their money, Antioch sacrificed their leaders and teachers. The question for you then is how do we respond the prophets. I listen to a lot of sermons online and I can tell you the sad truth <laughs> that my ratio to listening to my sermons and my properly responding are very off. <laughs> Friends, reading the Bible, reading devotions daily, praying, listening to sermons on Sunday and teachings at Sunday school are only effective if you and I respond and respond sacrificially. See, it's one thing to say that makes sense. I see what Antioch did there. I see that they gave monetarily, that they gave sacrificially. But what does that mean for you? What do you give monetarily? How do you serve Jesus and how do you give sacrificially? 
Is it sacrificial? Sacrificial. God loved you so much that He gave, and He gave very sacrificially His one and only Son. Do you love Him back that much? See, that's a question that only you and I can answer personally and seek to answer better. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, we covered two big topics and controversial topics nonetheless, but simply because they're controversial doesn't mean that we should take them out of the Bible or keep them silent. Rather, we're confronted with the fact that you challenge us personally, that you don't just want into our Sunday schedule, you want into our pocketbooks, you want into our private life, you want into our thoughts where we have little attorneys rising up to defend our idols. Father, you want everything about us because you call us to sacrificial discipleship. So, Father, it is my prayer personally, I can't speak for anyone else here, but that you would have it all that I would not argue against you, that I would not argue against your word, that I would open up my wallet and say, take what you want. Father, I pray that the enemy and all the wonderful tactics that the enemy uses to keep me from giving my all, from not trusting other people, from whatever it may be, that you would convict me and then show me why you have convicted me and that I would be obedient to do what you would call me to do. It doesn't mean we never discern how it's being spent. But it does mean, are we erring on the side of grace or on the side of greediness? Father, um, as for prophecy, we pray that indeed we would respond to your word. We would indeed respond to injunctions to see what the future might hold for us unless we repent, that we would be on the path of repentance and that we would encourage others to do likewise. Father, we love you, we serve you, we long to just obey, love, and serve you as much as you have loved, obeyed, and served us. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.